A whole generation fought to keep Europe free. Are we about to witness the end of Europe? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Even without the former guys, recent encouraging Putin's Russia to have its way with the European bloc of nations, their own growing internal political pressures from the far right threatened to end Europe as we've known it. That region where so many of our grandparents fought and died to keep them free is today suddenly facing threats of a renewed 21st century fascism. According to our returning guest today, John Pfeffer, his recent article originally published in Tom Dispatch has not at all, is not at all subtle, but is, has the highly worrisome title asking if we are starting to see the end of Europe. Where, until the very recent times, there was realistic hope of a cooperating sort of United States of Europe offering a glimmer to the world of a prosperous green economy as they resisted and held strong against threats of far-right authoritarianism. Suddenly, it seems we're seeing a revitalized aggressive nationalism from the right. And the visible tipping point of this new and exceedingly serious threat is the growing possibility of not only the U.S., but a Western Europe moving to cut off aid to Ukraine. There is the prospect of Europe standing by as the people of Ukraine consider the possibility that thanks to the rise of the right in Europe, they may be cast adrift and at some point soon no longer have a country. And with that dynamic, we may see further fragmenting of Europe. Our guest John Pfeffer is director of the Institute of Par Foreign Policy Studies, Foreign Policy and Focus. John, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, up until the end of 2023, it appeared that Europe was unified in its support of Ukraine's resistance to the Russian invasion. How much money were they considering in aid to Ukraine? And what happened to that proposal? So the most recent proposal was about $50 billion in aid, and much of that was uh, economic assistance for kind of post-war reconstruction. Of course, the war is still going on, but there are parts of Ukraine which um, have been relatively shielded uh, from the war. And I, I put the emphasis on relatively because obviously the Russian army continues to um, rain down a great deal of uh, artillery and uh, bombs upon Ukrainian cities. Um, and that $50 billion package from the European Union was held up because of one person, essentially, Viktor Orban, uh, the prime minister of Hungary. Mm. And Orban basically said, look, you know, uh, I don't like the idea of money being shifted away from us, Hungary, and perhaps, you know, the other poorer countries in, in the European Union, and sent to Ukraine. Um, and also, maybe we should wait until after the uh, European Parliament elections in June, uh, and, you know, maybe we'll have a different, uh, different set of, of leaders who are going to make the, these decisions. Now, uh, eventually, and that was at the beginning of this month, the European Union uh, head honchos got together and, and basically uh, made a deal uh, with Orban, you know, carrots and sticks, mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to, to push this through. Uh, and they were able to 
to get the $50 billion um, approved. And, you know, basically Orban was able to say, well, you know, I'll be able in the future uh, to, to veto this. Um, which may or may not be true. Um, and, uh, and certainly when it comes to Ukrainian membership in the European Union, I'll have plenty of opportunities to veto that, which, of course, is also possibly true. Um, <clears throat> but the, the dispute between Orban and the European Union at the moment, it looks like just one guy against, you know, a, a group, you know, a consensus. But the sad truth of the matter is, as I think you pointed out in your introduction, that a number of other uh, political leaders are coming to the fore in Europe, people like Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, um, you know, the new leadership in Slovakia, uh, and, and potentially new far-right leadership in Austria, in Belgium, and more importantly, uh, a whole slew of, of new far-right legislators who are likely to be elected in the June elections to the European Parliament, so that Viktor Orban will no longer be just one guy uh -huh. railing against the consensus, but actually he'll have quite a few allies. So when Orban left the room, when the uh, EU devoted to consider uh, further aid for uh, Ukraine was how how wily and strategic was Orban on that move? Yeah, so so these were the two issues that were being discussed: uh, a short term fifty billion dollar aid package to Ukraine, and the second was um, actual membership for Ukraine in the EU. So. Obviously not from one day to the next, but begin the process uh, for Ukraine to one day enter the European Union. And uh, essentially, Orban stepped out of the, the meeting on this second question of EU membership, uh, allowing it to go forward so that he didn't have to vote one way or the other. <coughs> now, what was interesting about that was, you know, this is largely symbolic at this point. You know, Ukraine's going to have to go through, uh, going to have to jump through enormous hurdles in order to make it into the European Union. Right. So in other words, there's going to be lots of opportunities in the future for Orban or, you know, for anybody like Orban to say, hey, you know, this is, uh, this is just not going well. Uh, we're going to pull the plug on, uh, on EU membership for uh, for uh, Ukraine. Now, you know, behind uh, Orban's decision is a kind of <clears throat> very stark economic calculus. Right now, Hungary is one of the top recipients, if not the top recipient, of what's called EU stabilization funds. In other words, the money that the EU provides to the less economically successful mm -hmm. um, countries in, in Europe to stabilize them and bring them up, you know, to the level of EU average. Hungary is a country of 10 million people. It's a small country. Uh, what Orban is worried about is a country like Ukraine, which is a huge country. It, come, it enters the European Union. Suddenly it's going to be, uh, you know, taking a huge amount of those stabilization funds. Hungary will no longer be in its kind of privileged position. So that's, I think, you know, the, the rather vulgar calculus that Viktor Orban is, is engaged in.
Well, somehow I sense that vulgarity and Victor Orban are not exactly strangers. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> what, what is Orban hoping will happen in this next European parliamentary election? So he, he was the one guy, but now is there a sea change that is he's trying that he's expecting and trying to make happen? What are his goals? Yeah, well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that the Orban's party, which is Fidesz, um, it's not does not belong to any particular block at the moment. Um, it used to belong to a, one of the Europe-wide blocks, but it got kicked out largely because, uh, you know, because Orban's an idiot <laughs> and they didn't want him in, in their block any longer. But there, there are two far-right blocks. One is um, this identity block, which you know contains you know half of the far right parties, and then there's another another one that contains the other half of the far right parties. Mm. Um, and uh, these two blocks, at the moment, uh, according to the polls, uh, if you add up, you know the the likely votes that they will get in the June elections, uh, and you add on on top of that the uh, unaffiliated Fidesz votes then the far-right bloc will have the largest number of votes, uh, the largest number of deputies in the European Parliament. And that, that's actually uh, really hard to, to, to believe. You yeah, know? It is. Here, Europe, we, we tend to think of as um, having kind of two strong political pillars. There's the Social Democrats, and then there are the Christian Democrats. I mean, they, they're called different things in different, uh, different right. countries, but they're basically kind of a, a center-left and a center-right party. And, and those two parties have um, cooperated uh, in the European Union for decades. And, and the policies that are currently being promulgated in the European Union, the, the emphasis on, on um, this kind of green energy transition, that's you know, the result of you know, coalition-building uh, bipartisan, if you will, uh, politicking of the center-left and the center-right. To imagine a situation in which the far-right suddenly has the largest block of votes, that, that throws a monkey wrench into European politics. Um, it, it either means that um, the, the far-right will suddenly become a, you know, a political partner of the kind of center-right, kind of pulling the center right further to the right mm -hmm. um, or a desperate attempt by everybody else um, to counter this this large block of uh, of far right deputies um, so that's you know that's the kind of situation that, that Victor Orban I think will be thrilled to see because you know he is excited about the possibilities of of playing a larger role europe wide you know hungary you know it's a small country like i right. said 10 million people and he's managed nevertheless to to kind of project himself onto the the grand panorama of european politics uh from this rather modest base uh, but if the far right suddenly has, you know, a dominant role to play in European politics, Europe-wide, then Orban's, Orban's position is even stronger, even more prominent uh, for, his, for his role in kind of ushering in this, this new political 
um, dispensation. So it seems like from going from the leader of a small country, uh, the fact that there is this general movement. And, you know, I, I, I wonder about the, the, the coalition that there has been between the center and the center left and the left. Uh, if, if, they're, if they don't have a, a vision, you know, but are simply not the far right, I wonder if if that's enough to to hold off the the shift to the far right because people can you know the people in the EU can you know see what uh, the far right is and what it stands for uh, and, and it's a, it's a clear picture whereas the other side is the other block if I'm right tends to be kind of diffuse and and not having its stuff together. Well, I think that's correct and. You know, uh, up until recently, I mean, the last four or five years, this consensus position of, of the mainstream parties in Europe right. has been around this green European Green Deal. Uh-huh. And, and it's a consensus in that it has an environmental uh, emphasis, obviously. It has the green and the Green Deal, and that's all about cutting carbon um, emissions. But there's also... Um, you know, incentives for businesses. Uh, there's incentives for uh, job creation. Um, it's a it's a pretty um, uh, comprehensive approach to an economic restructuring of Europe, um, and with a global focus as well. The challenge here is that the far right has said, you know, this European Green Deal it's essentially elitist, um, and and what, is, what do they mean by that? I mean, they mean that, you know, all of the changes that uh, the European Green Deal is, um, is uh, proposing, uh, and in some cases implementing, because many of the provisions have gone through, uh, advantage the middle class or the upper middle class. Um, so, for example, uh, in Germany, the far right has made a lot of hay recently, by complaining about heat pumps, um, and mm. heat pumps, you know, basically are uh, you know uh, electrical alternatives to uh, to fossil fuel heating your home, um, and it seems like a no brainer. I mean, if you're going to cut your addiction to oil and natural gas, you know, you got to replace it with something best to replace with something that's, you know, electric, uh, you know, electricity can come from, um, can come from solar, it can come from natural gas, uh, I'm sorry, it can come from solar, it can come from uh, wind. Um, so heat pumps it just seems like a, a no brainer. But, you know, the far right party in Germany was like, look, these are expensive, these heat pumps. And so who can afford them except, uh-huh. you know, the wealthy? Uh-huh. So, uh, so they were able to go from, you know, approximately 14, 15% of the electorate to basically doubling their share to 28, 29% to become the second largest uh, party in Germany. Now, this is in terms of public opinion polls or hasn't been uh, uh, a German election in, in some time. So it's not clear what would happen, you know, uh, when the next election does come. But if the election were held today, mm. they would do very well indeed. Uh, so this is a kind of common refrain that the far right has used to discredit 
the policies of the center left and the center right to discredit the policies of the European Union around the European Green Deal. And I did find it fascinating in reading your article. Apparently, the, the far right sees phasing out fossil fuels as a threat to traditional family values. What? How, do, how does that happen? You know, it, it, it does on the face of it seem kind of um, ridiculous. However, you know, just uh, imagine in the U.S. context uh, how people in West Virginia see coal. I mean, coal yeah. is for them a cornerstone of identity, a cornerstone of community, cornerstone of how West Virginia has been for generations. Take away coal and you are basically taking away identity. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, that is similar situation for, for obviously coal mining communities in Germany where coal is still a, a, an important uh, fossil fuel. But, uh, but the same argument is made even in places where you don't have that kind of argument I mean, it, or that kind of connection between uh, fossil fuel extraction and, and identity. Um, it's almost a manufactured or created identity that the far right has, has uh, said um, that somehow uh, you know, oil and natural gas are, uh, are symbols, I know this sounds strange, but of whiteness. Of uh, of the mm -hmm. of the kind of prosperity that oil and natural gas has provided to you know historically white communities in Europe um, uh, as a function of either their extraction or mm -hmm. uh, or the consumption of, of of fossil fuels. So it's a it's an interesting and uh, and and I think highly disturbing argument because. You know, this is this will interrupt uh, substantially uh, any efforts to go beyond fossil fuels in places like Europe. And I, I wonder, you know, we're talking about Europe that, you know, there had been this idea anyway of a European Green Deal. And uh, with the dependence and, and reliance, insistent reliance on, on fossil fuels, I wonder if, you know, that can if the idea of a national identity is threatened by a European Green Deal and national identity, I mean, that's like a core of what the right is all about, no matter where it is in the world, you know, nationalism. And uh, I, I wonder if so then it seems like the, the push for environmentalism and uh, the greenish pink tint that there may have been uh, in, in Europe is uh, something that uh, the right is uniting against. Well, you know, the, the right has consistently said that we, uh, the French far right, or we, the German far right, uh, we, the Italian far right, we should determine what our country does. Not Brussels, not the European Union, right. not the European Parliament. Um, we may decide that we want solar panels, maybe. We may decide that, but we do not want this. Uh -huh pushed down our throat. So the, the, the notion that, um, uh, that European identity is now associated with you know, smaller carbon footprint, more sustainable energy um, production and consumption, um, 
that kind of attempt to establish a an all European identity based on greater sustainability, greater greater green uh, approach to life, that's coming hard up against you know the the sovereign mm-hmm. right to have whatever identity you want to have within the nation state, within the member state of, of the European Union. Now, there are plenty of folks within those member states that are perfectly happy to maintain both identities, you know, identity as, you know, I'm, I'm Italian and I'm an environmentalist and I have a all European green identity as well. Uh, or even that I'm Italian social democrat and I have this European green identity. Where the conflict comes is around the hard, you know, sovereignist approach of the far right. Um, that basically is uh, is fighting its previous battles in a different way. Yeah. Its previous battles were basically, you know, we're, we're pushing against the EU at every level, and even to the point of threatening to withdraw from the EU, as we saw with Brexit and the UK. And there were plenty of other kind of similar Brexit approaches from, you know, these hard right sovereignist movements throughout Europe. Maybe a Frexit, French, you know, pulling out of of the European Union, or a Grexit, the, the Greeks pulling out. But now the far right has taken a different strategy. It's decided, okay, instead of pulling out, what we want to do is take over the European Union. And that's an ext- a very uh-huh. different kind of perspective. We will take over the European Union and change the DNA of that European Union. So it no longer will be Viktor Orban, you know, battling against the EU or, you know, the, the uh, Marine Le Pen and the French battling against the EU. No. They will now have control over the levers of European power, and they will push aside this notion of a European Green Deal or a European Green Identity, and they will transform the European identity into something different. What it is, hard to say right now, because they're not in a position to do that at the moment, but this is, I think, what they're what their plans are for the future. Mm, Very, very interesting. A little bit, more than a little bit, scary. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today, returning guest, is John Pfeffer, who is uh, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, and we're looking at the end of Europe? Could it be the end of Europe? And we've talked a little bit about about Orban uh, as a as a big new player, you know, big you know from a small country. But there's a whole bunch of other countries. It's not just happening there. And as you say, they they may be interested in taking over the EU. Now the Netherlands. I mean, let's let's go through a bunch of the countries here. The Netherlands had been considered a reliably socially and environmentally progressive place, if I got it right, for decades. Tell us, please, about what's going on there, and I won't pronounce this right, Geert Wilders and his political mm-hmm. party. Who, who is his opposition, and in what ways is he important? So Geert Wilders has been around the Dutch political scene for decades. Um, he's he's well-known because of his, his uh, kind of flashy silver hair, kind of very uh, a handsome fellow, um, and... Uh, 
but perhaps better known for his rhetoric, which has been uh, vehemently anti-Islam, anti-Muslim, uh, anti-Quran, uh, and anti-immigrant more generally, has you know proposed at one time or another to ban Islam within uh, the Netherlands, to ban the Quran, uh, and to stop all immigration into the country. And you know, for a long time, he just kind of circulated on the margins of mm. uh, of Dutch politics. Um, you know, the Netherlands is a free-thinking place. Uh, it is, you know, uh, historically a place where, where free thinkers have taken refuge. This yes. is not a country that's going to shut down, you know, the, the, the speech of one of its politicians. Um, and uh, so, you know, he continued to mouth off uh, in his way. But then um, he was able to take advantage of a couple of different things uh, that have taken place in the Netherlands over the last year. Uh, perhaps most significantly, a real fear that, um, that economic inequality would uh, increase. Now, the Netherlands is a pretty rich country, I mean, you know, compared to even many of its European mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. neighbors. Mm -hmm. But it's... Uh, uh, it has as well uh, a rather substantial uh, group of folks living in the country who are, you know, uh, on the edge, on the economic edge, having difficulty finding places to live because the cost of living is so high, cost of rent. Forget about even forget about buying a house because you know the price of, of property is, is skyrocketed, uh, and they're concerned. They're they're living precarious lives. Now, ordinarily, it would have been the left uh, in, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands to kind of reach out to that sector. But increasingly, um, the far right has been successful, not only in Netherlands, but in, in other countries throughout Europe, in appealing to folks who feel left behind, left behind by what they perceive as the twin threats of uh, the globalists, you know, the, the people who preside over the global economy, um, the, the wealthy financiers, you know, the IMF, the World Bank on the one hand, and on the other hand, that other face of globalization, namely immigrants, you know, mm -hmm. people who have been uh, crossing borders um, uh, in search of better lives elsewhere. Um, and uh, the far right has skillfully kind of uh, used those "quote unquote" threats um, mm -hmm. to uh, to really gain support uh, in economically disadvantaged communities, and uh, and I think that that Wilders was very successful um, in, uh, in in gathering votes there. Uh, also, in the same kind of critique of environmental policies as being basically elitist feeding into that same kind of uh, sentiment that disadvantaged communities are, are again being left behind by the mainstream of, of Dutch and European policies. Who was Wilders up against? Well, he was actually up against, <coughs> excuse me, among other political candidates, Franz Timmermans. And Franz Timmermans, of course, had been in the EU one of the architects, one of the primary architects of the European Green Deal. And I think a lot of people in the Dutch scene thought, hey, here's this guy, well-known name, well-known profile. He's coming back to the Netherlands. He's taking charge of a party. 
uh, this kind of center-left uh, coalition of parties. He's going to be a shoo-in. I mean, he's got great name recognition. They, they misunderstood how much resentment was bubbling up from, again, the economically disadvantaged communities about their lack of access to you know, what has been promised uh, as part of you know, the, the, the uh, great Dutch dream of prosperity. Um, and, you know, the reality of, of what uh, this shift to clean energy means for disadvantaged communities, which often is higher prices, higher prices for energy, higher prices for rent, etc. And Wilders took advantage of that. And so, boom, surprise, in the election, he comes out, he and his party come out on top. Now, it's not like they got 70% of the vote. They only got like, you know, a quarter of the votes. But in the, you know, highly fragmented political landscape in, in the Netherlands, that was enough, you know, to basically win uh, the elections. The challenge, of course, for Wilders is to create a coalition. Um, that's you know, what happens in European politics. Your party comes out on top, but you have, in order to, to create a majority um, uh, you know, block in parliament to name a prime minister, you have to kind of work with mm -hmm. other groups. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in times past, uh, far-right parties were quarantined. You know, the mm -hmm. mainstream party said, I don't really care how many votes a far-right party is going to get, we are not going to work with them. We draw a circle around ourselves as legitimate parties, and those far-right parties are outside the circle. That's changed, unfortunately. So we've seen far-right parties enter into coalition uh, in a variety of different countries, Austria perhaps most prominently, but Italy as well. Um, and so they are no longer the verboten party. They are now, uh, in, in many countries in Europe, acceptable coalition partners. So uh, Wilders is now, I think he's continuing. It's, it's, a, it's not an easy task uh, to, to form a, a government in, in the Netherlands that will name him as uh, prime minister, much as Georgia Maloney had done uh, after the Italian elections, when her Brothers of Italy party also uh, came out on top, she too had to form a coalition with other parties. And in doing so, Georgia Maloney actually moved to the center. I mean, she said, hey, you know, NATO's not such a bad thing. Uh, I like the EU. And yes, we should continue to support Ukraine. You know, positions that her party had not taken at all, positions that had been an anathema mm -hmm. to her party before. Mm -hmm. But in order to kind of prove that she is a the new face, if you will, of the far right. She actually moved to the center on those issues. Will builders do that? I mean, he has, for instance, in order to, to build a coalition, he did say, okay, I withdraw my proposal to ban Islam, for instance. So he's willing to, to do that. I don't know how far you know, he's willing to go to, to, to secure the votes necessary to, to build a, a, a viable coalition. And there's always the, you know, the politicians, the elected officials who the main thing they're interested in oftentimes is keeping their jobs. And so they may have to uh, make alliances that they otherwise would not make. And 
Uh, so, you know, if they see uh, Wilder's party doing well and in other places as well, that does change the uh, the calculus of, of how things are happening. But I do think it's interesting what you're saying about resentment and how the, the right has used the populist, uh, you know, anger and resentment that people are left out. That's been a, a factor of, of the far right here for sure. I mean, who... I don't think very many people expected Donald Trump to win in 2016, but uh, there's there's this, that's what I suspect is still going on here. It's like, how can people support him? There's a, a lot of uh, resentment. Plus, people like the image of a strong man. There's no question about that. Dear listener, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Pfeffer. We're talking about the end of Europe. What's going on in Europe? It's moving from the, the green kind of left centrism to uh, to the right. And we talked about the Netherlands just a minute ago. What about Sweden and Scandinavia in general? They've traditionally been bastions of social democracies. What's happening in Sweden and the other parts of Scandinavia? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, because as you say, <clears throat> you know, here in the United States, when, when uh, conservatives want to kind of paint liberals as being socialists. They, they're like, you know, well, what do you want to create Sweden here? And, and, you know, a liberal might like Bernie Sanders would, might respond. Yeah. I'm interested in, in creating Sweden here. I think Sweden would be pretty good compared to, Sounds good you know, to me. Some of the, exactly. <laughs> um, but both sides actually haven't followed what's happened in Sweden um, because Sweden is no longer Sweden, or at least the Sweden that we think of is no longer the Sweden of today. Um, the Sweden of, you know, of socialism or robust social democracy, of, uh, of you know, very strong welfare state, uh, strong, mm-hmm. you know, services, you know, social services, um, an ethos of, of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um that all changed uh, basically in the 90s heading into the 2000s uh, as the Swedish kind of political center shifted to the right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a kind of a, uh, a political shift. It was a shift in philosophy oh. and an embrace of, of neoliberalism, of the importance of kind of smaller government, cutting government services, um, really uh, transforming uh, Swedish social democracy into what was considered to be, quote-unquote, a more modern economy, more competitive uh, with its neighbors and other countries in the world, um, less generous, shall we say, to its citizens. Um, now, of course, still, in comparison to the United States, Sweden, even the, the more neoliberal version, uh, is uh, it, it's still, you know, far more of a social democratic um, kind of country than, than anything we would see here in the United States. But still, it's no longer the Sweden of the 1970s uh, or the early 1980s. Um, the other kind of transformation that's taken place in Sweden and elsewhere in Scandinavia is a very large influx of immigrants. Uh-huh. Um, now, these countries were pretty much homogenous. Okay, so you had, you know, some Danes who lived in Sweden, or you had some Norwegians who lived in Finland, or whatever. I mean, you had white folks living in other white Mm -hmm. countries, predominantly white countries. But then, you know, a large influx of of folks coming from uh, 
the wars in Yugoslavia, so a lot of Bosnians uh, relocating, uh, or from other war-torn areas, Somalis, uh, Afghans, um, as well as you know folks from more recent conflicts uh, in the Middle East, the Iraq War, obviously, um, and uh, and that has transformed the complexion, obviously, of of Scandinavian countries um, to the benefit. Uh, of these countries uh, in terms of the kind of transformation of culture and the diversification of interests. And it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of uh, a revitalization uh, of what in many ways we're, we're at least heading in the stagnating direction uh, for these countries, but it also engendered a significant backlash uh, and far-right parties, which hitherto had not existed for the most part in these countries, or hadn't existed certainly since World War II, um, had a renaissance. Uh, and they, you know, said, "Look, these are people who are stealing, you know, from us uh, the the social benefits of our social democracy. We have uh, generous states that are, you know, basically, uh, you know, giving money to." Uh, to non-white people who are having a lot of children. Um, And that kind of uh, clearly racist Mm -hmm. uh, propagandizing turned out to be quite popular uh, for the true Finns in Finland, for the Democratic Party, what's called, so-called the Democratic Party in Sweden. Um, These parties uh, have become very successful and have uh, entered into into coalition governments um, often, you know, playing critical roles in developing uh, policies on immigration, policies on education. So, you know, this is this has been a real sea change for mm-hmm. Scandinavian countries. They're no longer kind of reliable in terms of uh, of um, you know their social democratic approaches, um, at least in terms of the quote unquote tolerant approaches. But this does raise an an, an important issue, and that is that a lot of far-right parties, um, uh, when they make appeals to disenfranchised communities, they often will borrow economic programs from the left. So, yes, they're on the far-right, but uh, I'll give you an example in Poland, the Law and Justice Party, when it won in Poland, and it actually lost recently after being in power for eight years or so. But uh, its economic program was actually, much of it drawn from uh, from the left, not from the neoliberal right. Uh, So, for instance, much more generous... um, uh, you know, maternity benefits, much more generous benefits for young people in terms of, of taxation, um, all of which was, you know, designed to, you know, really put money into the hands of disadvantaged mm-hmm. folks in Polish society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that explains a lot of its continued support. Why it lost is another question recently that has less to do with its economic policies and other issues. But it's important to understand that the far right often is not just paying lip service in its appeals to the disenfranchised. When it comes into power, it often will, in fact, um, implement economic policies 
that to some extent you know provide benefits to the disadvantaged. Now, I'm not saying that's true across the board. Obviously, if you look at what happened with Donald Trump here in the United States, that was all lip service. I mean, right. there were no very little benefits coming from the Trump administration that, that made their way into the pockets of of you know his his less wealthy supporters. Um, and you can you can say the same thing about some other far right parties, but so it's, it's not across the board. But in some important cases, uh, the the far right has borrowed the left's economic um, policies. Well, populism. I mean, there there's a longer, I think, tradition of left leaning populism than right leaning populism, uh, at least in the United States. And uh, you know, so it, it's it's smart politics. Let's face it. Another country, of course, is, is Austria, which Hungary used to share power in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then, I mean, we're talking about changes happening in Europe now. Boy, everything changed at the end of the First World War. In the late 1930s, for example, Austria welcomed its homeboy, Adolf Hitler. It's a lot yeah. bigger than Hungary. What's happening in Austria in the 2020s? Yeah, well, you know, Austria kind of led the way in terms of... Uh, uh, the far right um, taking over. And the Freedom Party there was very successful. Um, but the coalition government uh, actually was um, undone by a scandal involving um, uh, a, a Russian um, a Russian woman. <laughs> it could very well have been a, uh, a classic honeypot um, scenario. Uh, but involved kind of payouts from uh, from Russian uh, agents, um, and it led to the the downfall of that of that party uh, and that coalition government. But the party has survived um, under new leadership, and it is uh, right now leading the polls in terms of uh, what will happen in elections later this year. Um, will that happen? Hard to say, um, but. I think, unfortunately, the taboos have been broken. Um, and, you know, Austria having an actual Nazi past, uh, like Germany, um, it made it difficult in the post-war uh -huh. environment for far-right sure. parties to, to prosper. I mean, many of them were outlawed, um, and certainly there was uh, uh, less enthusiasm. Uh, even even yeah. when there was... Uh, some support with that you know continued within the population for far right ideas. Uh, the the political representation of those ideas uh, was harder to to uh, to actually implement. So uh, it, it's those taboos are now broken in Austria, even even to a larger extent than in wow. Germany. Hmm. And uh, and so th th it's it's concerning because you know the. There's a, a, a good possibility that we will see, in addition to the Netherlands, in addition to Italy, uh, in addition to some coalition governments in Scandinavia, in uh, Slovakia, uh, that we will see the far right um, kind of uh, take over in Austria, as I said, in, in uh, Belgium with uh, the kind of far right Flemish party. But it's also... Um, as I said, in Germany, where the uh, alternative for Deutschland uh -huh. is currently kind of number two mm. uh, next to the Christian Democrats, uh, and Marine Le Pen uh, in, in her kind of 
um, National Assembly in uh, in France. Um, well, you know, is currently heading the polls there, mm-hmm. and great dis- dis- disaffection for uh, Macron at the moment. Right, um, that could turn around. I mean, it's turned around in the past, but you know, a lot of people in France are now bracing for the possibility of far right leadership. Um, and and if we see, you know, right now it's kind of the quote unquote margins of Europe. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, smaller countries, Hungary. Austria is still a small country. Uh, Netherlands, mm, still relatively small. Uh, Italy, getting a little bigger there, getting a little bigger. But France and Germany, if they were to kind of fall to far-right leaders, I mean, look, then we're talking about the, 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 the center of Europe and what it means to be European mm-hmm. starting to change dramatically. Wow, interesting and a little bit frightening stuff. And we talked just a little bit just there about uh, uh, Le Pen and, and France, and Macron is still in power, but he's got he's got some pressure on him. And of course, like every politician for the most part, he wants to stay in power. How how is he being affected by the rise of uh, Le Pen and and her party? Well, uh, you know, Macron is uh, is a wily politician, um, and yes, he has he done is. what he what he needs to do to survive politically. Uh, and you know, he he comes he himself is quite unorthodox, at least in terms of the rise of his uh, party. Um, you know, breaking through in a political environment that had been again shaped like much of uh, of Europe. Uh, shaped by a kind of center-left, the Socialist Party, right. and a, a center-right, the Conservative Party. And, you know, his his homage, you know, party just kind of broke through that, said, you know, we're tired of these left-right distinctions. We're going we're gonna to do, do politics a different way. Uh, France is kind of, um, uh, is, a, is a static, hidebound, um, society it needs shaking up, and, and I'm I'm the young man who can do it. Well, uh, France has largely resisted <laughs> his attempts to to shake it up, um, and uh, and I unfortunately I think a lot of people in France are looking to somebody else who promises an even more thoroughgoing, more radical mm. transformation, and that would be Marine Le Pen. Um, also, someone who has been uh, in has been part of you know French political life for decades, uh, and before that, her her father. Um, so, right. like Gert Wilders in in the Netherlands, you have someone who's a familiar face, and they've been there a long time. So that even when they say outrageous things, the fact that they've been saying it for so many years has, I think, desensitized the population uh, to the to the sheer radicalism of what they're what they're uh, what they're saying. Um, so it's going to be tough for Macron to. Um, once again, as you know, this, this is kind of a perennial feature of French politics. You have a, a, a first round in uh, mm. you know, Macron and uh, Le Pen will emerge likely as you know, the two choices. And then there'll be a runoff and, uh, and probably people, if they had a choice between anybody else and Macron, they would choose uh the other person, but because it's Le Pen, traditionally they have 
rallied behind whoever it is that's running against Le Pen. And, uh, but this might be the time when people say, no, we will, uh, we, we want to see what Le Pen is like. Uh, and they will finally uh, choose not to uh, support the anybody but Le Pen position. And you say that in Germany, there's, there's Olaf Scholz, who, who followed the centrist powerhouse, Angela Merkel. And we meant, you know, there is the AFD, the Alliance for Deutschland, is strong. I believe they're strongest in what used to be East Germany. Uh, but they, they can't actually take power, can they? Are, they? are they moving Olaf Scholz to the right? Uh, at this point, no. I mean, they, they can't take Good. power. They, huh. don't have, they don't have quite enough... Uh, support um, and uh, and <clears throat> as you said, a lot of their support is regional in what was uh, former right. East Germany. Right. And you know, talk about resentment. I mean, right. it's resentment not only about kind of globalization and forces of globalization, but the forces of Germanization. You know, <laughs> the forces of West Germany imposing itself upon ah. East Germany uh -huh. and all the folks in East Germany who've been left behind as part of that right. process, right. Uh, including miners and people in heavy industry, people associated with all of the, the dirty uh, industries of Germany, um, which obviously... People see the writing on the wall. They see they're not going to last forever. Um, they're going to be made redundant, and they're angry about it. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, you know, the, the alternative for Deutschland hasn't quite um, come up with a party program, I think, that is um, geared to get a majority of Germans behind it. Uh, at, at, the, at this point, I would say it's most likely strategy is to kind of pull the Christian Democrats further uh -huh. to the right. Uh, and that's a possibility. I mean, you know, <laughs> under, especially under Merkel, uh, you know, the, the Christian Democrats in Germany were basically like, you know, the liberal Democrats here in the United States. I mean, even though they're, they're on the right wing, but to be in the right wing in Germany is is basically be a, a liberal Democrat here in the United States. You know, kind of they were open to immigration. They supported you know a lot of strong social welfare provisions uh, in Germany. Very strong on envir environmental questions. I mean, you know, Germany more than probably any other country in Europe has been at the forefront of of wind power. Right. Uh, solar power, adding on all of that sustainable energy into the network um, and onto the grid. You know, that, that's just, you know, a lot of it is, is not only the, the uh, work of the Christian Democrats, but uh, obviously the Green Party as well, but, but even, even the, the more, um, uh, more conservative party in uh, Bavaria, uh, was responsible for this shift to green. So mm -hmm. all of which is to say that the, the conservatives, the Christian Democrats, um, and their Bavarian partner in Germany are, are pretty centrist. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a tough uh, pull for the alternative for Deutschland to, to kind of pull them all the way over to, to where they are. But we have seen uh, in in certain Lander, in certain areas of, of Germany, um, certain candidates 
from the Christian Democrats move much closer to to uh, to the uh, AF, uh, AFD positions. Well, it is, I must say, a tad reassuring about Germany there, because that is the you know center of Europe. And just briefly, I, I have sort of a connection with uh, Spanish historical uh, stories from the Spanish Civil War. And Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is of the left. He's in there now. Uh, there used to be Francoism there, uh, and I, I see that, that there are some Francoists who are fired up against the moderate socialists, and they tend to be, as you say, on the margins of Europe and don't really, you know, have that much pull over over the rest of Europe. But back to 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 Orban, you say wittingly or not, Orban is following the Kremlin playbook. What are Putin's goals in all this? What is his desired role for Orban and Hungary and Orban's transnational ambitions? Well, you know, I think Putin's strategy has shifted. Um, prior to the invasion, uh, the kind of direct invasion of, of all of Ukraine uh, a couple of years ago, Putin was definitely uh, supporting a number of far-right parties, but not just far-right parties. I mean, he was he was supporting any kind of Euro-skeptical forces, yeah. any political parties in Europe that uh, was, were skeptical of Brussels and Brussels, quote-unquote, interference. Um, and he did so because he really wanted to drive wedges uh, within Europe to, uh. to divide Europe as much as possible, um, made it easier for him to... Um, to achieve certain objectives, and objectives like uh, which were narrow in some cases, like delivery of natural gas, construction of natural gas pipelines, uh, specific trade deals, um, uh, but more generally, to have a, a, a weaker and divided Europe right. was uh, was um, desirable for Putin because it made it less likely that. Europe is going to expand uh -huh. the European Union toward the Russia's borders, and more uh, unlikely that Europe would devote a lot of attention to supporting democracy movements in the former Soviet Union. Um, after the invasion of Ukraine, I think uh, Putin made a different decision. He decided ultimately that um, while it's true, he, he still wanted to have a weak and divided Europe, he wasn't going to put too much emphasis on cultivating friends there, uh, simply because a lot of people uh, suddenly found relationship with Putin to be toxic. You know, I mean, here, here's this guy who just violated national borders, committed war crimes. Not a good look to be, you know, having your arm around this guy's shoulders, with one exception, and that was Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban didn't seem to care, you know, about what the the optics were of his relationship with uh, with Putin, and suddenly uh, it was a, a different kind of strategy where instead of supporting lots of different groups, I think Putin decided hey, Orban's going to be my man. Mm. He's going to be my man in Europe. He's going to he's going to be the one who disrupts. Uh, the efforts to provide uh, assistance to Ukraine. Uh, he's going to be the guy who uh, is skeptical about uh, sanctions applied against uh, the Kremlin. He's going to be the guy who's going to lead the charge. I think I'm just going to just going to focus on on my relationship with him. Yeah. Um, if political circumstances change, 
I'll change my strategy, sure. But for the time being, uh, Viktor Orban will be my representative. That sounds like smart politics, strategic politics. I must say, I'll give, I'll give it to him on that, on that, that uh, just let Orban be his guy, but uh, see how the trend goes. And I have to ask, and again, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're, we're just finishing up here with our guest, John Pfeffer, talking about his article, The End of Europe. If Biden manages to pull it off, do you expect the rightward shift in Europe to continue? How tied is it? I mean, obviously, if Trump wins, I think that would be a, you know, a significant boost to the far right in Europe. I, I don't think there's much of a connection. I oh, mean, good. <laughs> I mean, I think there was there was a hope, you know, early on, you know, especially with Steve Bannon as as mm -hmm. Trump's kind of international um, representative, trying to pull together, especially across the Atlantic, um, you know, far right movements in Europe and here, and it certainly continued to a certain extent that the far right here, the MAGA lovers, if you will, uh -huh. uh, have a very close relationship with Orban um, and, and a couple other parties in, in Europe. But uh, I, I, there's not much of an electoral alliance, if you will. <laughs> in other words, the, the political fortunes of far right parties in Europe are basically disconnected from uh, you know what what happens here in the, the presidential race between Biden and Trump? Well, this has been very interesting, and uh, hopefully, dare we have hope <laughs> uh, to see that Europe remains Europe. The, the rightward trend is uh, is interesting, and it's important to, that we watch that. If people are interested in following more of your work, John Pfeffer, fpif.org, is that it, or what is the uh, website? That's, that's correct. Foreign Policy in Focus, fpif.org. Thank you so much, and uh, if we can have hope, let's hope. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.